is the Faith in Angels Hospice Podcast. Over a decade of trust and service in our community. Each week, we'll talk about our experiences in the hospice field and provide a little education along the way. Have a listen and enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth episode of the Faith in Angels Hospice Podcast. As always, we're a hospice agency here in uh, Burbank, California, servicing the entire Los Angeles County. This time I'm joined with one of our registered nurses, Nina. Hello. Uh, so Nina is here. She wants to uh, help give us some information, educate us on a variety of topics. But first, before we get to the education, let's just go ahead and meet Nina. Uh, Nina, how did you come into uh, be associated with the Faith and Angels Hospice and how did you meet the proprietors? Um, well, I met Nicole actually through Instagram at the time I was working in step down and ICU during the pandemic. This was the beginning of the pandemic in March and I was doing a live IG with the founder of Symbiotica and, uh, Nicole happened to watch the live and I was just talking about what I was seeing in the hospital, the types of patients that were coming in how we were taking care of them, um, and just the whole process. Uh, it was at a time when most people were confused about what was going on with mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, everyone had fear and all that. So um, Nicole saw the live. She reached out to me and told me about the hospice and asked me if I'd be interested in coming in and meeting her and talking about working for her. Um, which was great. It was at a time where I was also uh, tired of acute care. I had been working in acute care for nine years at that point and oh, wow. was looking for a change. So I came in without really knowing too much about hospice other than we would discharge some patients into hospice, but um, learned a lot once I got here. Yeah. And so for those of you listening, Nicole, like I said, she's the administrator owner of Faith and Angels Hospice. You'll meet her at a later episode. Um, but I'm assuming your uh, experience at an ICU um, probably equipped you somewhat to deal with um, patients at the towards the end of their life and kind of maybe assisting them and also their family members in how to prepare for something like that. Um, I would say I definitely had a lot of experience with patients at the end of life, but I would see how unprepared most patients are and mm. families. And although hospice is something that is talked about in the ICU, it's not always explained the right way to patients and their families. And a lot of times they don't opt into hospice because of the stigma around it and yeah. just them not understanding what hospice is and what we can provide so it's, it's funny you say that because for my conversations with nicole herself it's one of the reasons she decided to, to start her own hospice is because she also had an extensive career in healthcare and found um a lot of things lacking and so she wanted to fill that gap with the business that she started so likewise what is uh something in the area of how to prepare whether it's the patient themselves or their family members on how to prepare them for this for this end stage um whether it's the conversation the topic i mean it's definitely a topic that everyone wants to avoid so how do you go about bringing that up and having it adequately 
I think um, most importantly, it's the family that needs to start these conversations. And of course, we can help them with this. But I think if people were more open to having these open conversations earlier in life, they would have a better idea of what they want for themselves, what they would want for their family members. So, you know, in the Western world, even, I mean, everywhere, it's taboo to talk about death. No one wants to talk about death while they're living. It's not something that we talk to even, you know, people that are almost at the end of their life. Um, It's just not a comfortable conversation. So, I mean, I know there's a lot of movements um, that are trying to bring in education to school systems, but until we get there, we need to have a better way of opening these conversations um, and finding the right time to talk about them. So even if we're talking to our kids about it, maybe if they have a grandma that's near end of life or does pass away, that might be a good time to talk to your kids about it. Or, you know, once your adolescent gets their driver's license and, you know, they're filling out forms on being an organ donor, that's an opportunity to talk about what they would want, you know, let them know, hey, you're going to get behind the wheel. There's always going to be a chance that something might happen to you. What would you want if something were to happen to you? So it's just opening that conversation earlier to, you know, give more information to people. Yeah. And that, I mean, what you said is totally right. The fact that it's a taboo subject to the point where it's almost, uh, customary for families if there's a if there's a death in the family and they have to go to a funeral depending on how old if there are kids in the family depending on how old the kids are they'll leave the kids at home they'll they won't bring them they won't oh we don't want them to get you know to see something like this they won't talk to them about it i mean within reason of course you understand at a certain age yeah maybe you don't want to do that but to your point there's a way to bring it up right it doesn't always have to be scary Right, exactly. It's just taking the fear out of it. I mean, we have so many books and videos and so much knowledge around the birthing process and how to take care of newborns and children as they're growing. But as they get to like elderly age and when that part of life comes and death is, you know, on the horizon, people don't know how to react to it, don't know how to talk about it and don't really know what is going to happen when that time comes. But it's probably also a matter of just human psychology of not wanting to accept that that's the that's where we're at. I mean, maybe the patient might, but the family, I don't think ever wants to accept that. Right. Right. Of course. Um, But that's also why, um, you know, taking that responsibility on yourself and planning for your own death is such an important thing. And it's something that people need to be taught about, because if you make your decisions and you have your DNR and advanced directive. I know you talked a little bit about those in previous episodes, but it's you know really important to have those things because our healthcare system, the way that it works is if you have a heartbeat, you're alive, and whatever they're doing in the hospital system is to keep you alive, to keep that heartbeat going. Mm-hmm. If there's a little bit of brain activity, you're considered alive. But most people wouldn't consider that living, and that's something right. that they should be able to choose right. on their own. Right. So 
like you said, we have touched on this a little bit uh, in the past with our social worker regarding an advanced directive and um, specifically a DNR. But what uh, perspective can you offer more so from a from a clinical standpoint on that on that topic? Because it is it does get very murky when the patient doesn't have an advanced directive. And it goes back to our previous conversation. They probably don't have it because they didn't want to face that part of their life, the end part of their life. So when they don't have an advanced directive, then it can get tricky on who's making the decisions if they're if the patient's not alert or incapacitated. Who's making the decisions? I mean, siblings, kids, they can they can argue over this kind of stuff. Yeah, of course. I see that all the time. Um, so choosing your DPOA is really important, and that's where the advanced directive comes in. That's who's going to make decisions for you when you're incapacitated. And, um, you know, a lot of people think it's going to be the spouse or if they are not married, it's going to be their kids. But sometimes it's not really the family that would make the best decisions for you. So you have to have these open conversations with your family to let them know what you want. I had an instance where I had a patient that was on hospice and we were asked them, asking them what they want. They still had mental clarity. They still you know, were alert oriented. And we asked what they would want and they said, no heroic measures, DNR, DNI, so do not resuscitate, do not intubate. Um, and so when we asked the spouse what they thought of it, she was like, no, no way. Even one more day with you is of importance to me. Mm. And so maybe that's not the best person to be your mm. DPOA. Maybe you need to find the person that's going to take your wishes. And um, I mean, that patient in the end ended up changing their mind and saying, whatever my wife wants. So those conversations need to happen mm -hmm. so that people know what to do in that case. Um, and then having the DNR, DNI, or full code, whatever you decide. And it's really important for people to know that that's a decision that you can change later on. Your family can change. But at least if you have that advanced directive, you have that DPOA, you give people the opportunity to make that choice the way you would want after you've had the conversations with them. Yeah, exactly. And the thing that our social worker Jody said last time, I believe it was uh, last time, that's that rings very true is nobody plans on dying. So it's not like you can it's not like you should wait until, oh, OK, now's the time I'll do it. It really is never too early to have something like that because because of a nobody plans on dying. And I mean, as ugly as it is, anybody can go at any time. Right. I mean. So that is something that you want to look at, not only for your future, but to put your loved ones at ease in terms of having to handle these things if they are thrown into that situation. Right. I definitely agree. I mean, I never thought about these things until I got into the healthcare field. And yeah. when I saw what happens in the hospital and what happens with these patients that don't have these things set in place, you know, I, within my first year of becoming a nurse, I had my advanced directive filled out. Yeah. Um, I think when you see it, it opens your eyes more, but most people just don't see or talk about it. Yeah, exactly. Now to uh, another aspect of um, kind of the hospice care, end of life care, where does uh, nutrition and hydration come in and the benefits and the complications of each? Because, I mean, it's uh, to me, it, it was weird. To just hear, oh, the complications of hydration, just because you always associate hydration with just positive, 
you know, uh, positive health. But that's not the case. There can be pros and cons. Right, of course. So this is also another um, place where the DNR form comes handy because it specifically says if you want selective measures done, if you want artificial nutrition or not. Um, so there comes a time when a lot of patients, when they're at the, at the end of life, they're no longer able to safely eat. Um, nutrition and hydration can actually hurt them. So uh, whether it's swallowing difficulties or digestive issues, uh, whatever the case is, um, you know, the the if you're a full code, full treatment, they're going to um, suggest for you to have a feeding tube. And that's not always the best choice because that comes with its own complications. So when patients are at the end of life, when they're actively dying, nutrition is something that isn't considered a priority anymore, hmm. especially if it's hurting them. So a lot of times your patient might be dehydrated, but if you give them IV fluids, then that fluid can cause pulmonary edema. It can cause okay. worsening of heart failure. That fluid goes to other areas of the body and can cause pain. Um, so that's something you need to consider for these um, end-of-life patients. And that can be really hard to explain to families as well because if you're telling them... It's, just, it's instinctual, right? Yeah, exactly. You want to feed them. You want, you know, when you see that they're not eating and they're not drinking anything, that's when yeah. the family, it's really hard for them to understand that this is the safe way to go, right. you know. Um, but other than having those treatments... Um, part of hospice is also being able to say no to treatments and nutrition is actually a medical treatment. Right. So, um, although we're not trying to hasten death, uh, sometimes it's necessary to stop the nutrition for the rest of whatever life they have to be a little bit more comfortable because if they're going to aspirate, if they're going to have, you know, like I said, any of the complications with hydration and nutrition, then it's counterintuitive at that right. point. Because it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's about reducing suffering, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, and yeah, I mean, to your point, it might seem, although it's not, but it would seem counterintuitive for a family member to watch a patient not receive hydration or not receive nutrition. But then you had, you know, to explain to them, then no, this is actually the best course of action. This is actually going to reduce the suffering of your loved one. It's, I can understand how it's a tricky, it's a tricky one for people to understand or to you know wrap their mind around. Definitely, um, in general, just end of life is really difficult for families, and they don't really know how to navigate it. But from what I've seen in hospice, you know, with the help of nurses and social worker, bereavance counselors, it makes the process a lot easier. And if we can just educate the patients and their families more, the end of life doesn't have to be such a scary thing. It can actually be beautiful. I've seen lots of instances where that you know, end of life is a beautiful thing. It becomes a celebration of life almost. Exactly. Yeah. Ultimately, it goes back to just our human psychology. It's not something we want to think about. It's not something we want to face. It's not something. It's the ultimate fear, I guess, for some people, right? Mm -hmm. But at some point, you're going to have to um, deal with these things because, A, if you don't, as the patient, 
you leave it in the hands of your friends or family members. And if they don't have some sort of uh, direction, something on paper, a power of attorney, that creates complications for them, which in turn creates complications for your own well-being and state of suffering in your last uh, in your last months or weeks. Right, exactly. You were saying how difficult those conversations are, but the more we have those conversations, the easier it's going to be to deal with these things later on. In our culture, Western culture, we don't talk about it. But if we look at some like Scandinavian cultures, they really put an emphasis on preparing for end of life. There's even something called the Swedish death cleaning. So everyone kind of cleans up their stuff at the end of life. The older they get, they start getting rid of things. They start Mm. um, figuring out what they want to give to people and what they might want to donate. And that's it's the same thing with with this like conversation that we're having you have to prepare for all those things just so that it doesn't become a burden on your family um so other than just talking about death itself and what you would want to do when or what you would want to be done when you're dying also what can you do to make that process easier for your family yeah and that's that's interesting about the scandinavian because then that just becomes a matter of cultural custom right Mm -hmm. i mean that sounds like that's something that they've developed as a tradition over you know generations whereas to your point where we are that's not really something we do i mean you know talk about changing a custom that everybody's used to you know it's definitely something that needs to be looked at it's definitely something that needs to be taken care of earlier rather than later and again just if not for yourself then for your loved ones so that they're not left in a situation that they can't navigate definitely um i just wanted to mention there is a book by a hospice doctor his name is bj miller Mm -hmm. and it's called a beginner's guide to the end and it's a really good resource for people that are either dealing with someone dying or don't know how to speak about these things with their family or their kids and um, the end of the book uh, talks about death in a really interesting way it compares death to how death is in nature And I thought that this kind of like brings together everything we were talking about. And it talks about how trees have um, like they live for a few hundred years and um, they'll live for like the first hundred years. And then the last hundred years is them actually actively dying and the way they die. So trees will release their uh, the most nutrients during those last hundred years before they die so that the ecosystem goes on and actually thrives because of them dying and so if we could be a little bit more like those trees our death could be the same natural death it would almost take a little bit of the fear out of it right definitely yeah okay nina thank you so much for joining us this was a fantastic uh episode and um just a little anecdote you're studying to be a nurse practitioner you're gonna take your board exam soon or no um i uh have about a year left so okay. getting there a little by little okay so good luck wish you the best thank you all thank right you for having me of course anytime see you guys